Thank you, Jay. You guys can all take a seat. All right. A week away from Christmas. You guys ready? Kids, are you ready? Your parents going to make you get up in the morning and come here on Sunday morning? Pajamas? Yeah, you guys are excited about that. I'm excited about it. Last time that happened was like, what, six or seven years ago? And uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I hope you'll open up your copy of God's Word this morning, turn to Luke chapter 2. As Jay was just reading from us, we are going to spend most of our time there today, meditating on uh, this passage. Um, As you're getting there, I want to read you uh, an excerpt from an article that Logos.com posted on their website uh, a couple weeks ago called, What is Advent and Why is it Important for Believers?, Uh, which includes a long quote by N.T. Wright that I think you'll be blessed by. Uh, It helps us kind of get our hearts and minds into into this passage today. So uh, here we go. Each year, as December draws near, many of us commit to finding rest in a season notoriously wrought with materialism, busyness, and exhaustion. We want to focus on what really matters and prepare our hearts and minds to remember the birth of Christ and all that it means for the believer. One way to do this is by celebrating Advent, which for centuries has been tied to the first coming of Christ. Now listen to this excerpt from N.T. Wright's book, Advent for Everyone, A Journey Through Matthew. Advent itself can be puzzling. Advent means coming or arrival. The hymns and readings often used at this season seem to be about two quite different things about waiting for the first coming, the birth of Jesus, and about waiting for his second coming to put all things right in the end. How did these things get muddled up? How can we make wise, prayerful sense out of it all? The early Christians developed the church's year as a way of telling, learning, and reliving the story of Jesus, which stands at the heart of our faith. As they did so, they came to understand that it wasn't simply a matter of going round and round the same sequence and never getting anywhere. Think of a bicycle wheel. It goes round and round, but it's moving forwards, not standing still. So it is with the church's year. We are not simply going round and round the same topics and never getting anywhere. We are signing on as part of God's larger project, God's forward purposes, his plans for the whole creation to be renewed, so that as the prophet said, the earth will be full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the Advent hope. With that first Advent, Jesus is coming, it was clear that God's rescue operation for humans in the world had been decisively begun, but not yet completed. Jesus really did launch God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven in his public career, his death, and his resurrection. But it was clear because of the sort of thing this kingdom was that it would then need to make its way through the humble, self-giving service of Jesus' followers until the time when Jesus would return to finish the work, to put all things right, to banish evil and death forever, and bring heaven and earth completely together. The second Advent Advent then overlaps the first. We celebrate Jesus' first coming and use that sense of fulfillment to fuel our hope for his second coming and to strengthen us 
to work for signs of that kingdom in our own day. That is one way of saying what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I hope if you've, if you've been listening astutely the last couple of weeks, you've heard this phrase already, but not yet. And I hope that that's where we find ourselves in this Advent season of remembering the already. Jesus has come. And in fact, he has died. He said on the cross, it is finished. And so there's a sense in which it's already happened. Our salvation is already secure. But there's also this not yet reality that we're waiting in still for him to return and finally make all things right. And so that's where we find ourselves today. And even as we talk about the topic of joy, I think we'll all be, it'll be easy for us to see the already but not yet because we experience joy, but not all the time, right? We still live in this not yet period that is, uh, it's broken and marred by sin and God is perfecting us and he's making, uh, he's building his church. He's not done with us. And so there's still yet more. Um, So the already but not yet, is exactly where I think the Lord intends for us to be posturing ourselves as we approach this passage in Luke 2 and approach this topic of joy and really consider this idea that Jesus' birth means joy for all. So uh, I want us to notice verses 9 through 11, Luke chapter 2, 9 through 11 in particular. This is, these three verses are where we're going to spend our time today. Luke writes, and an angel of the Lord appeared to to them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that the shepherd's response to seeing this angel. They're terrified. It says they, they feared greatly. And that's because angels are terrifying creatures. Like if we have this idea of angels as like chubby, mostly naked babies sitting on clouds, like that's not what angels look like in the Bible. When you, you have angels described in the Bible, they're like pretty crazy looking. And they're gro- glowing, these bright figures of light. And so they show up and oftentimes in the Bible, the first thing that an angel says is, fear not. It's like they have to go, I know I'm kind of terrifying, but like, it's okay, right? They have to calm people down. Uh, So much so, in fact, that uh, Paul says that agents of darkness masquerade as agents of light, right? So if if you're ever interacting with something that you think, oh, this might be an angel, if it seems like not scary, you might like second guess yourself, right? Angels show up and they're pretty, pretty, they're, they're creepy. So uh, it says that the, the shepherds are afraid. And here's what I want us to see. It's not just that the angel shows up and he's a terrifying creature, but it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. And so they're rightly scared to death because it is terrifying for us as imperfect creatures to behold the brightness and perfection of God's glory. Uh, The 4th century monk and theologian, St. Gregory of Nazianus, wrote, Christ is born, glorify him. Christ from heaven, go out to meet him. 
Christ on earth, be exalted. Sing unto the Lord all the whole earth, and that I may join both in one word. Let the heavens rejoice, and let the earth be glad for him who is of heaven and then of earth. Now look at this. He says, Christ in the flesh, rejoice with trembling and with joy. With trembling because of your sins. With joy because of your hope. You see, when people come face to face with the glory of God, their first reaction is not joy, but rather fear more often than not. Because in the light of his radiant beauty, the ugliness of our sin is exposed. Like, have you ever tried to play hide and seek in an empty room with the lights turned on? It doesn't work, right? Because the light shines in the darkness, the darkness is not overcome it. When we come face to face with the light of God's glory, our sin is exposed. There's no place for it to hide. And so just like Adam and Eve in the garden after they've sinned, God says, where have you been? And Adam's like, well, I hid myself because I was naked, right? The sin in Adam, when he came face to face with the Lord, he went, I can't be in his presence. And that's what sin does to our relationship with God. But that's also inversely what the glory of God does to us. We go, oh no. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah finds himself in the, in the throne room of God. And he doesn't start dancing and singing and celebrating. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's terrified. He has to be purified so that he can stand in God's presence. And that is the right response, even for us today, as we come face to face with who Jesus is, that we would first say, oh no, that's, that means something bad about me. And so an angel shows up in the middle of the night to some shepherds hanging out with their sheep, and the glory of God shines all around them, and they are freaked out. So the angel says, you don't have to be afraid. Fear not. Now why? Why can it say that? They should be afraid, but they don't have to be afraid anymore because Jesus has just been born a short walk away from them. And as C.S. Lewis would put it, everything sad was becoming untrue. Because verse 10 says, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The German Reformed theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher, it's a fun word to say, uh, wrote, the appearance of the Redeemer, so Jesus' birth, the appearance of the Redeemer is the source of all other joy in the Christian world. And for this reason, there is nothing else that can deserve to be so celebrated. So the answer to the question, why shouldn't I be afraid? And what Schleiermacher says is the source of all joy in the Christian world is verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the, the advent of joy, which is our topic today, the arrival of joy itself is announced, and it's a person. It's a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It was prophesied that this baby would be called Emmanuel, which is what we just sang. It means God with us. 
And then a multitude of the heavenly host show up and they start praising God and proclaiming that Jesus' arrival is indeed good news of great joy for all the people. Church family, this morning, I just want us to meditate together on two beautiful realities presented in verse 10, proclaimed by a messenger from God to a group of shepherds. First, joy is real. It's here. We can experience joy. And second, God wants us to experience it. Okay, so if you're skeptical about either of those points, that's okay. There's grace for skeptics like you and me, so just put on your critical listening ears, take some notes, and let's talk about it. Uh, I, I love talking about this topic of joy. Uh, in fact, all of us, every decision we've ever made, whether we knew it or not, was in fact about pursuing joy. We only choose things according to what we think will make us happiest or be the best for us. Jonathan Edwards would say that uh, free will or free choice is really just the ability to choose what you think will make you happy, right? So uh, I was looking at my library at home yesterday and realizing I've probably spent more time reading about and thinking about this topic of Christian hedonism, joy in the Christian life, than any other single topic over the last 20 years of following Jesus. And uh, as a person who's experienced some seasons of depression and deep sadness, I'll say even though my experience doesn't always bear it out, like I don't always experience joy all the time, I think the Word of God is clear on the truth of these two realities. The joy is real, and God really does want us to experience it. And so we're going to look at those two today. Uh, I'd really love to continue to digest it with you if you walk away from today with lingering doubts or questions about joy. Um, it would be a pleasure to me. So, okay. If I'm saying that joy is real as our first point, then we have to define our terms, right? What exactly is joy? That's going to be for all the people. The word that Luke used when he wrote the angel's message down was kara, the Greek word, and it means the emotion uh, of, of happiness like you would think it does, but um, not in the sense of like a spike emotion, but more of like an, a, a deeper abiding emotion, um, which could really be described well as calm delight. Okay, so when you think about joy, think of calm delight. Now, the angels go on in this passage to sing praises to God, to rejoice, it says. That's a response to joy. Praise, adoration, exaltation, but joy itself is not the same as rejoicing. And it's not the same as happiness. Joy is more of a state of being than it is an emotion or an action. Okay? So if we go with this definition of joy as a state of being that's like this calm delight, then that's really different from what probably first came to mind when thinking about joy. Most people, when you ask them, what joy is, they're, they're going to basically describe to you happiness, which is an emotion, but not a state of being. Happiness shares a root word with happenstance, and the idea is that happiness has a lot to do with how we feel about our circumstances. But as a state of being, joy has a lot to do with how we feel in spite of our circumstances. So you see that big difference? Uh, this is a topic 
that's been really thoroughly developed by John Piper, C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards, Augustine of Hippo, uh, really drawing off of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And so we're talking about a reality this morning that has a rich history of Christian thinkers all the way back to the fourth century who were looking at the words of Jesus, looking at Paul's epistles, and basically coming to the conclusion that God's intention for his followers is an abiding, unshakable joy. And so I hope that uh, many of you grew up learning this thing. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. Now, the next word is like, I'm so happy, so very happy. Like, don't worry about that part. But like the joy, joy, joy down in my heart to stay is like, oh, that's rich and good and right. Uh, John Piper has written most extensively and recently about the topic, which he deems Christian hedonism. Uh, The classic Presbyterian Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession, says that God created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But uh, Piper took the liberty of adjusting that phrase just a little bit to say that God created us, yes, He created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him. But specifically, He created us to glorify God by enjoying God forever. That it's actually a part of why God made us to have joy, to enjoy Him. Now, in what I think most people would agree was John Piper's magnum opus, Desiring God, he wrote that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. His argument is essentially that being God means that God is the best being in all of existence, right? His supremacy is absolute. So as such, the best thing that God can share with any other being is Him, Himself. And delighting in God brings God great glory. So if we follow that logic, God made us to glorify Him But glorifying God, celebrating the greatness and reality of who He is, is actually the best thing we could ever possibly experience ourselves. And so God made us to do the very thing that will be to our ultimate joy, which is to enjoy Him by bringing Him glory as objects of His affection. So Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Now, if we pay attention to the New Testament... We come to the same conclusion that Piper did, which is that the Christian life, and particularly the early church's lives, often really suck. Um, We can agree on that, right? Like, following Jesus is hard. Jesus himself was crucified, and he said that his followers shouldn't expect any better than what he received. In fact, the Bible says all who seek seek to live a godly life will be persecuted, But Jesus shows up and the angels are like, hey, good news, great joy, Jesus is here. I think there's a sense in John Piper's writings that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, that that's particularly true or particularly glorious when we experience joy in Christ through suffering or trials. So here's where we get to the the crux of joy. It is often experienced, we might even say that the light of joy shines in and through us all the more brightly 
in spite of or in the face of the worst of circumstances. If we really want to understand joy in a biblical sense that we might experience it ourselves, we have to get to this point of understanding the early Christians had a joy that was so unshakable that people thought they were nuts. Like they weren't acting crazy. Remember, joy is calm delight. But they were so enraptured by Christ that the writer of Hebrews said, for you had compassion on those in prison and you, there's the word, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. They didn't just accept that people were taking their stuff while they were caring for people in prison. They joyfully accepted it because they said, sure, take it. Following Jesus brings us more joy than our stuff. That's why the hymnist writes, take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. A long time ago, I heard a story uh, of a, a, a tribe of people. They were, it was a long time ago, and there, there was a lot of warring between tribes happening. Uh, and and it, in their culture, like if another tribe won a, a war or battle against you, they would basically make you their slaves, okay? And so they would strip away all uh, cultural markings, all of your history would be gone, they would give you a new name, and basically they were saying, like, you're not a person anymore, you're my property, and you have to do what I tell you to do. And a missionary came and uh, proclaimed the gospel to this tribe, and the whole, the whole village said, yeah, we're following Jesus. Um, they were saved, and they said they were <clears throat> learning about Paul's letter to the Philippians where he said in uh, chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And they said, yeah, us too. And uh, so tattooing was a big part of their culture. They all tattooed crosses on their wrists because what they were saying is we don't know if Jesus is going to protect us, if God is going to protect us from being overcome by another tribe or village. Like, we have no way of knowing that. But if we are, we would rather have them cut these tattoos out of our wrists and die than to forsake following Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain, they said. Um, early Christians, when Nero was emperor, he, would, he was martyring Christians, basically blaming, blaming Christians for all kinds of things that, that we weren't doing. Um, but he was killing Christians, putting them on spikes, and lighting them on fire to light his garden parties so that the other people in, in town could like, actually see that this was happening. And yet the Christians continued to follow Jesus. And the movement of the church continued to expand despite that persecution. And every time that the church has faced persecution throughout all of history, there's been not a crushing of the growth of the church, but actually it's promoted the growth of the church and the expansion of the gospel. Perhaps the greatest example, the ultimate example of a joy that defiantly sustains through the worst of circumstances is that of Jesus himself. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Okay, so he's just said, hey, even though persecution may come, let's, let's endure, let's persevere, let's run this race with endurance. So how are we going to do that? He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, we know from Gethsemane that Jesus 
at least at that moment, didn't want to go to the cross. He pled with the Father for another way. The promise of positive future emotion, spike happiness, is not enough, is not sufficient to sustain us through life's hardest trials. It doesn't say uh, for the, the happiness set before him. He was just really looking forward to resurrection, so he endured death. Jesus didn't say, well, I'll be happy later if I just obey the Father's will now and go to the cross. Like some of you have tried that this week, right? Like, oh, I'll, I'll, be, happy, I'll be happier at church if I don't live in sin all week. I'll be uncomfortable if I live in sin all week and then go to church on Sunday. Well, that, those little spikes of emotion are not sufficient to sustain us through temptation. They're not sufficient to sustain us through struggles. This, this is a crucial point. Jesus for the joy set before him. In other words, he was on the path of joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Joy is an abiding reality that is with us in our darkest moments. It's our restful state that travels with us through suffering and is intensified rather than snuffed out by suffering. So much that we come out of the other side of pain, infertility, loneliness, unemployment, sorrow, depression, whatever it may be, we look back and we love Jesus more. And we say, my God, thank you for being with me and sustaining me through the darkness. Psalm 84 says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Don't miss that word, rather. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. It means we prefer God's presence. We choose it. We like it. Think about Psalm 23, a really well-known and loved psalm. Think of it in light of the idea that joy sustains through, through suffering. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Wow, that's so good. But then the passage takes a turn. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that doesn't sound so happy, does it? He says, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David was a shepherd. Like I'm sure that his sheep didn't appreciate the rod. That's correction. That's like a slap with the rod. It's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good, but he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why is that? Because he's tying the idea back to this concept of moving through the valley of the shadow of death. He's saying, even in the the lowest and the darkest and the worst of times, if you're with me, God, then I count it as comfort. He's saying, maybe you're doing that for my correction, right? The shepherd would use the rod and the staff to keep the sheep moving along the path that the shepherd wanted them to move on. And you think particularly if the sheep were going to be driven through uh, a place that seemed sketchy or scary, they, they might be a little more freaked out. The shepherd would have to do more correction to keep them on that path. And David is saying, like, that's a comfort 
to us as Christians. Just the fact that God goes with us through the valley. And so the angel in Luke 2 said it had good news of great joy because a Savior had been born to us, with us. From the very first chapters of the Bible, we learn that all humans have rejected God's good plans for his creation, which is called sin. And sin separates us from God. So Jesus came to meet our greatest need, which is to pay the price of our sins. The book of Romans calls it the wages of sin, which is death. He came to die in our place, taking the wrath of God against sin on himself so that we could experience instead the joy of God's presence. Rather than the separation from God that sin created, Jesus came to give us the joy of God's presence, which is, in fact, the joyful existence that he created mankind for. And so the angel calls him a savior. Now, the angel also said that the good news of great joy would be for all the people. And that's why I said that not only is joy real and possible, but that God wants you to experience joy. Now, I've already talked about how that's not the same thing as saying God wants us to be happy, right? Like we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble if we're not careful with that. The New Testament's pretty clear that God may not want us to always be wealthy and well-fed and good-looking. I mean, look at me, right? But he does want to be with us. He does want to fill us up and give us joy all the time, happy or not, okay? So one of the books that I've read in the last seven or eight years that's, that's been one of the more impactful for me, I really recommend it to you. If you've got some time between Christmas and New Year's and want to read just a good book, um, pick up a copy of Joe Rigney's The Things of Earth. Um, he was a student of John Piper, and so he's been looking uh, at Piper's work, desiring God, you know, um, God's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Um, and, and Rigney's like, okay, I grew up singing this hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And Rigney's like, okay, I get that. He goes, but I also grew up singing, this is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. And the rustling grass I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. So which one is it? The things of earth become strangely dim or he shines in all that's fair? And the answer is, it's both, right? Um, That the Lord desires to be with us in those moments, which would either distract us from seeing him because of their goodness and excitement, or would distract us from seeing him because they're so bad. He wants to be present with us in that. But he also wants to be present with us in all the good and mundane moments of life. Um, my son Graham is nine, and I think he, he does that better than anybody that I know. Um, he just, he's able to see something beautiful and connect God is blessing us. And uh, 
we were eating some venison stew. That's, it was good stew. I'll, I'll give him that. But like, he was like, I just like the stew because you can be cold and hungry and you just eat it and it like hits you with happiness all the way down. I was like, that's really good. That's really good. Um, but that's, that's the way that God desires to, to walk out Christian life with us because all of life, praise God, isn't suffering. So in the suffering and, and in the venison stew and the Big Macs and the sunrises, he's there too. Um, we're going to spend our last few moments talking about how it is that we can experience joy in all parts of life. Uh, and I've already tipped my hand a little, so it's okay if your mind is jumping ahead and drawing out implications, uh, but just stay with me for a few more moments. Uh, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5, which Josh read for us this morning as he was lighting the joy candle. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There's a key at the very beginning of this passage, and if we miss it, then we miss the whole point of what Paul is saying here. And I can remember being in a discussion with a group of friends about this, and uh, this young lady was talking about how as Christians, we should be more loving than other people. We should be kinder than other people. We should be gentler than other people. We should have more self-control than other people as followers of Jesus. And like all those things are true, but... Uh, someone else said, yeah, but the, the fruit is of the Spirit, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Wes, right? It's not the fruit of Liz, the fruit of Josh. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Lexham Bible Dictionary said, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is expected of Christians because it is the natural result of having received salvation. The joy comes on account of what Christ has done, irrelevant of whatever other circumstances are happening in one's life. So we're back to this idea of abiding in Christ. Church of the Valley, I'll just say buckle up, because this idea of abiding in Jesus will be a major theme of 2023 as we look forward. Um, if you're involved, you've probably heard us talking about it over the last couple of weeks. And it's for our good that we keep ruminating on this theme. You'll see even our church calendar next year be lighter because we're trying to create space for you to just spend time with Jesus. And Paul says that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Literally, the Spirit produces joy. So how do I experience joy, the joy we've been, we've been talking about? The Spirit of God produces it in our hearts. In other words, if you're not experiencing joy in your day-to-day, -day, in the highs and the lows and in the mundane, then a few things may be true about you. One, you, maybe you've never been born again by the Holy Spirit. You don't have joy because you don't know the joy giver. That's possible. 
We talked a few weeks ago about John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus talks about how it is that we bear fruit. Uh, We talked about it just a few weeks ago. Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and Jesus says in John 15, 5, he's the vine. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I'll never get tired of talking about this. You guys are going to get tired of me talking about this, but I won't. Because how, how is it that we experience joy? How is it that we have uh, success in our obedience to Jesus? How is it that we walk through the Christian life? It's that we rest in him. We abide in him. And he produces it through us. Uh, many of our, our ladies have been doing a devotional study together this season called The Wonder of Advent, Delighting and the Hope, Joy, Peace, and Love of Christmas. And they've been reading about and having dialogue about these same themes that we're talking about on Sundays. On day four of the Joy Week, they read a lesson uh, all about this very topic. And the lesson was called Connected to Jesus. So I just wanted to share an excerpt with you, uh, so simply and beautifully said. When we are connected to Jesus, we bear fruit. We don't produce the fruit, we simply bear it. If we could produce the fruit on our own, there would be no need for the vine. A branch exists for one reason, and that is to carry the fruit of the vine. See, there, there are presents under some of your trees at home right now. They're your presents. They have your name on them. You possess them. They're in your house. But they don't really do you any good all wrapped up like that, do they? You have to unwrap them and spend some time with the gift to enjoy it. And so it is with Christ. He produces the fruit of joy in us the more time we spend with him. Emmanuel, God with us. In talking about abiding in Christ, Martin Luther didn't want to be overly formulaic because the point is not to go do a bunch of stuff, but rather that we be with, remain with, abide with Jesus. So to answer the question, how do we abide with Jesus? Luther said, well, where is Jesus? If abiding in Christ means essentially hanging out with him, then where is he so that we can hang out with him and have him produce fruit in our lives? And Luther's answer was that we primarily abide in Christ through reading the Bible, his word, through prayer, talking to him, through fellowship with other Christians who are indwelt by His Spirit, and through acts of charity or service to those in need. Because Jesus said, whatever we did unto the least of those, we did unto Him. So if you want joy in your life, stop looking for it. You already have it. Unwrap the gift. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And being in His presence is all we need for him to produce the fruit of joy in our hearts. One more thing, and I'll I'll close with this thought. After meeting Jesus, the shepherds in Luke 2, verse 17, it says, when they saw it, like Jesus, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So I'll leave you with this thought and, and my prayer that each of us unwraps this gift today and doesn't leave it sitting under the tree 
I'm going to read you a quote. All right, it's this. Charles Spurgeon, in an Advent sermon in 1865, he said, Though the shepherds told what they heard from heaven, remember that they spoke of what they had seen below. They had by observation made those truths most surely their own, which had first been spoken to them by revelation. You see that? They, they heard the message from the angel, but they went and saw Jesus himself. No man, Spurgeon says, no man can speak of the things of God with any success until the doctrine which he finds in the book he finds also in his heart. Pray with me. Father, um, thank you for this reality that Jesus has come to be with us and that in your presence there is fullness of joy. God, uh, we ask simply that you would continue to meet with us this morning, uh, but that you would give us grace this evening and tomorrow to to abide, to tarry with you. Um, Lord, as we do, just as the branch doesn't produce fruit, but just bears it, Lord, let us uh, remain connected to you, the vine, as you bear the fruit of joy, or as you produce the fruit of joy through us, and let us bear it. Let us bear it well, Lord. Um, let us see you in all things, in the lows and in the highs and in the mundane, producing joy in our hearts. God, I pray for uh, anyone who has never experienced the joy of Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, there's no reason for any of us to leave without unwrapping the gift of Jesus. You've given him. You said good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Lord, you want to be with us. You died to be with us. And, and when we're with you, Lord, it fills us up and it brings us the greatest joy. So I pray for that for myself and I pray for that for my friends and family here today. Lord, would you be glorified in us as we are satisfied in you? Amen.